Hello, good evening. My name is Andrea Pratt, and um, I want to welcome you to this uh, LSE event. Um, our uh, guest today is uh, Professor John Quig Quiggin from the University of Queensland. Um, he is uh, probably one of the broadest economists I know. Uh, his uh, his um, CV is quite uh, spectacular. He has 265 publications, ranging from, the, from theoretical foundations to uh, issues in Australian water policy. Uh, Professor Quigging has had some very important foundational uh, publications in, um, uh, uh, in utility theory. In fact, uh, he is credited with uh, being the first person to think about uh, uh, anticipated utility, which is a, uh, now an accepted way to think to overcome the LA paradox. Um, uh, he has continued uh, for all his career, I believe, on, on uh, doing both uh, this very interesting theoretical work and equally important policy work, especially in Australia. He has uh, a number of uh, uh, books already, and he has uh, an important blog that uh, uh, is very influential in, uh, in, uh, uh, in policy. Um, now, John has put together all his knowledge and um, his, uh, his way of thinking in, the, in this new book uh, about zombie economics. And uh, I am sure this is going to be a very stimulating and thought-provoking talk. Welcome, John. Well, thanks very much to Andrea, and thanks to the LSE for uh, inviting me here, and thanks to you all for coming out on what seems to me to be an unbearably cold evening. Maybe there are colder to come, but um, this one's quite cold enough for me coming here from Queensland. So I, I started, um, started this book, in fact, on my blog and also on the Crooked Timber Group blog to which I contribute, trying to... Uh, pull together some of the lessons of the global financial crisis for economics and, and um, looking at uh, ideas that seem to me to have, um, have uh, dominated a lot of uh, economic thinking in the decades leading up to the crisis and that now needed uh, to be reassessed or in fact simply knocked on the head in some cases. And uh, as I was writing the book, it became apparent that even though, uh, to my mind at least, these ideas had been amply refuted by the experience of the global financial crisis, uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, while they were down for a very short period, they rapidly were re-emerging uh, in the manner of uh, the zombies clawing their way out of the, out of the grave. Uh, at least, I guess, the older style zombies, zombies now have a, you know, the canonical zombie these days is slightly different, and, uh, uh, but uh, at least the zombies I grew up with uh, uh, definitely were, had to be buried first. So uh, zombie ideas, well, ideas, um, uh, as we know, outlive their creators. That's, uh, that's a, a good thing. We don't want ideas to be uh, the um, uh, property simply of the great man or woman who thought them up. But uh, unfortunately, also, uh, uh, out often outlive the evidence that supported them. So we have ideas in economic policy which seem to... Uh, seem to fit the evidence and, and become popular, uh, but even after it becomes clear that uh, they can't stand up to uh, the, uh, the evidence, uh, the ideas continue on. Now, 
And I'm going to talk about uh, five such ideas that they're covered in the book, um, and they're, they're different kinds of things. Some of them are factual claims about the way the economy works in particular periods, like the Great Moderation. Some of them are uh, theoretical ways of looking at the world, uh, the efficient markets hypothesis and, uh, and dynamic stochastic general equilibrium macro, and some of them are, are policy ideas like privatisation. I'll talk about uh, why, what, what I mean more precisely with all those ideas, but together they form a package which I've called market liberalism. Uh, I've tried to find the most neutral name I could find for it. This is, ideas typically have a lot of pejorative names and not very many positive ones, especially if they're dominant ideas, because for people propounding dominant ideas they just seem like common sense. So there's a lot of names like Thatcherism, neoliberalism, the Washington Consensus and so forth, all of which are you know, hostile. I've, I've tried uh, in the book to uh, not to caricature the ideas that I'm uh, attacking, but to try and give an explanation of where they came from and to, to do so to give the name that I think is, is most neutral is market liberalism. These are ideas which dominated public policy uh, thinking uh, from the uh, mid-1970s or thereabouts until the, until the crisis. Uh, ideas which, in my view, should be dead, but very clearly, uh, very clearly, as we're seeing uh, right now, ideas that uh, well and truly aren't dead. So uh, the object here is uh, uh, to give them the, the double tap in the language of Zombieland to try and um, uh, try and give them another blast to see if we can't keep them down. So where did these ideas come from? Well, they're born out of the collapse of post-war Keynesianism. So for the um, Older members of the audience, there are some of us old enough to remember this. There was a long period after World War II when um, it appeared as if we had the problems of the global economy pretty well sorted out. Uh, we had um, full employment, we had steady economic growth, we had uh, increasing equality and the kind of things we used to worry about then, uh, most of them seem fairly trivial by comparison. But all of that, um, all of that uh, uh, fell in a heap in the early 1970s with uh, uh, what was called stagflation, the combination of high inflation and high unemployment, uh, to which uh, uh, the Keynesians of the day had no, no answer, or at least no answer that seemed adequate. Uh, uh, the result was that um, uh, uh, Keynesian ideas were replaced by a set of alternative ideas, first called monetarism, the, the ideas of Milton Friedman, but a more broader package of, um, of market liberalism. These ideas, um, in my view, uh, we can now look back at the 30 years uh, and say that uh, in the light of the crisis uh, they've fairly comprehensively failed. Nonetheless, and, and indeed, uh, even though we see many of the policies that uh, uh, the policies driven by these ideas being revived in the so-called austerity programs, uh, the theoretical basis has collapsed and, uh, and we, we don't even really see much, uh, even now, uh, much really sincere advocacy of the of the policy ideas that until a few years of the theoretical ideas which until a few years ago were dominant rather these ideas are being pushed uh, uh, more or less on the basis of uh, there is no alternative uh, and in my view uh, these are these are ideas that are likely uh, if left in place long enough to drive a, another crisis so um, the great moderation that the first of these this uh, a phrase that was coined, um, I think, by Stock and Watson um, uh, early this uh, early this century, uh, but really uh, popularised by Ben Bernanke in a talk he gave uh, with that title before he uh, aspired to his current dizzy heights uh, chairman of the Fed. 
but uh, certainly uh, when he was already seen, I guess, as the man most likely. And this is a period of apparent economic calm from the mid-1980s onwards. And so um, this appears in US economic data, if you look at it the right way. I think, as I discussed in the book, you really do have to squint a bit to see the great moderation uh, in the, even in the US data. Uh, and certainly, um, certainly out, uh, outside the developed world, uh, the late 1990s in particular, were anything but a period of, uh, period of moderation. Uh, nonetheless, this claim was um, this claim appeared broadly to fit the facts of the um, of uh, the US, especially for people whose memories started sometime around 1970. So we had a period of immense uh, turbulence and disruption in the 1970s. Uh, the popularised of the Great Moderation were people who typically started their economic career during this period. By comparison, certainly the period from the mid 1980s onwards uh, looks exceptionally calm. Uh, one of the points, which I guess I don't uh, stress uh, explicitly in the book, but try to try to bring to light is the the importance of paying attention to economic history, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the discussions seem to be undertaken by people who, who really haven't considered uh, the economic history of of the twentieth century, or have considered it only in a kind of cartoon form uh, that uh, you know, certain, particularly U.S. scholars of the Depression, have have created in the recent past. So, during, during this period anyway, uh, it's certainly true that uh, uh, the US, uh, up until the current crisis uh, from the mid-1980s, only had two uh, recessions, and they were both, at least as measured by output, uh, very mild ones. A, a, a modest recession in the early 1990s, another one in uh, the early 2000s. And um, this uh, relatively stable performance was credited to a combination of financial deregulation uh, we'll talk a bit more about the efficient markets hypothesis shortly, and, uh, and so the general notion was that uh, financial markets are there to get asset prices right, to keep things in line. Uh, if the theory works, uh, the presence of deregulated financial markets should be a stabilising force in the economy. And secondly, that um, uh, this was a period when uh, macroeconomic policy was almost entirely undertaken by central banks in the form of interest rate policy. Uh, the idea was that uh, the understanding of interest, interest rate policy associated with things like so-called Taylor rules uh, marked a significant improvement on uh, previous policy, and therefore the combination of having the right people uh, making policy, the right theory behind policy, and uh, liberated financial institutions uh, should, give us the, um, should give us these moderate outcomes that appear to arise. Uh, so it's a natural fit with uh, a strong form of central bank independence. That was going to be my zombie idea number six, but I, I decided it was just a bit too uh, tricky to get a, a full chapter out of it. Uh, and with no role for government fiscal policy. So the crucial point here was that uh, uh, yeah, fiscal policy should be focused on some sort of measure of budget balance uh, and shouldn't be uh, uh, in undertaken, certainly not in an active counter-cyclical form. So, uh, the Great Moderation is the archetypal example of these ideas in the sense of one that uh, lived right up to the financial crisis and, and, I would argue, spectacularly died just at that point. The other ideas had their bounces up and down beforehand, but um, we can just see, um, I suppose, cliff diving was coined by the Calculated Risk blog. I'm, you know, like, uh, I think a lot of the uh, economic discussion these days, much more is going on uh, in blogs, certainly, than in, for example, academic journals, that the important stuff is happening at a pace that uh, the journals can't really 
cope with, and in any case, that the publication norms of the journals don't really uh, don't really encourage. So, so I can recommend the calculated risk blog for anybody who wants to keep track of, particularly the U.S. economy. And what we can see is just a whole series of graphs, uh, which all have this cliff diving feature that we wander along and wander along, and suddenly come to the edge, and then. Uh, as of uh, 2008, 2009, just, just jump off. And um, clearly, in terms, of, uh, in terms of a great moderation, we can see that you know, if you think of a great moderation, it's like a calm, calm stream just coming up to a waterfall. Everything is going very smoothly, and as long as you pay no attention to the uh, uh, disturbing noises coming from up front, it all looks pretty good. But uh, yes, yeah, so I would have thought of the ideas that um, of the ideas that couldn't possibly be sustained uh, in the face of the evidence. The great moderation would have to be the clearest. But in fact, uh, very shortly afterwards, um, uh, we saw it being described by a couple of uh, yeah, quite well-regarded and, and in many ways quite reasonable academic authors as a transitory volatility blip. Uh, the claim was even. Uh, from the perspective, this was uh, published a year ago, so even from the perspective of late 2009, we could see this, uh, this financial crisis as a brief sort of episode which shouldn't in any way shake our faith in, in the Great Moderation and in its continued existence. Uh, less, um, less obviously, but more importantly, uh, we haven't seen on the part of central banks, although of course they're adopting emergency measures of various kinds, so-called quantitative easing and so forth, uh, very clearly and explicitly their object is to return to business as usual as fast as possible, to go back to uh, the financial and monetary policies which, in their view, succeeded so well in the, um, in the decades following the 1970s. And um, so we, we can expect to see, I think, um, uh, there's been no willingness to move away from inflation targeting, uh, no willingness to consider that uh, a low inflation target, a 2% inflation target, uh, might not be as good an idea as it seemed. Uh, all of these things are simply waiting for the assumed recovery uh, in order to return to uh, the, what's seen as, as the pre-crisis uh, normality. And uh, much of the narrative then is that um, all of this stuff really had no macroeconomic causes, uh, it came out of left field in the form of various policy mistakes made by, uh, made by regulators and um, uh, assisted by, in various respects by, by bankers, but really had no, uh, there was nothing to suggest in the view of many central bankers that there was anything wrong with the approach of central banks in the period leading up to the crisis. Another bit of, re and indeed, you know, when you look at the circles in which central bankers move, it's perhaps unsurprising that this view is gaining increasing traction. Uh, what we've seen is uh, quite a rapid recovery in uh, corporate profits. In um, nominal terms, US corporate profits uh, reached a new record in, um, in the last quarter. That's somewhat misleading because that doesn't take account of inflation, but certainly um, Certainly, particularly in the financial sector, you do indeed see something that could be, could be described as a, a transitory volatility blip. Uh, but uh, no corresponding recovery in uh, employment or household income. And here's some figures for the US, which is, is the most striking case. Um, uh, the uh, blue line at the top is the participation rate going um, uh, significantly down. Uh, the green line, uh, unemployment, uh, rising very sharply and then showing no particular evidence of, of any tendency to recovery and expected by most to resume, uh, to move somewhat upwards over the next year rather than downwards. 
And even more strikingly, uh, the red line, uh, it's on the left-hand axis, which is the employment population ratio. And what you see is that for many decades that was increasing as a result of increased participation of women in the labour force. Uh, all of that gains, the gains, unfortunately, the, um, uh, the time axis has been um, uh, cut out here, but this point here is the recession around about 1980. So all of the gains in employment population ratio in the US uh, since 1980 have been wiped out uh, by this crisis. Uh, the whole notion which really drives much of market liberalism that the, uh, the institutions of the US are particularly conducive to uh, uh, job, job generation and job creation uh, really is not standing up to this evidence. Uh, but from the point of view of people, uh, particularly in the, corporate, in the uh, financial corporation sector, uh, whatever might be happening out there in the boondocks, uh, the crisis is well and truly over in Wall Street. And so that brings us to the efficient uh, market hypothesis. More properly, it's, I'll call it the complete efficient financial market hypothesis. So the first thing is that although economists, of course, talk about efficient markets in all sorts of contexts, uh, the efficient market hypothesis is only about financial markets. And a second point about it is that it not only says uh, that the markets that exist uh, have certain desirable properties, which I'll talk about, but also that implicitly there are, or would be in the absence of regulation, enough financial markets that all relevant economic risks could be traded away and valued on these markets. Now, uh, it comes confusingly in, in three forms, uh, and I'm always getting in trouble for, this, uh, for not distinguishing all three in the canonical way, but really there are only two relevant distinctions. There's the weak form which says that uh, you can't predict stock prices or asset prices based on their own past behaviour. And um, uh, broadly speaking, the evidence I think supports that pretty well. Although many papers, including respectable financial papers, still employ some person who draws a graph and draws some lines on it and says there's a support area here and there's a head and shoulders pattern there, uh, the general view is that none of that stuff is, is worth more than astrology and that uh, for practical purposes uh, asset prices follow, uh, uh, follow a random walk. But you know, that really isn't, you know, unless you are in the business of trying to make, make money in the stock market, um, uh, that really isn't a very interesting, um, very interesting discovery. And of course, uh, uh, anybody with a knowledge even of, of uh, Greek myth would observe that um, shortly after explaining the head and, head and shoulders pattern uh, predicts almost certainly a rise in the shares of companies X, they say, unless, of course, um, uh, this pattern back here means the opposite thing, so that um, uh, your typical uh, technical analyst is like the Sybil in, in making sure that uh, the predictions uh, uh, can never really be falsified. So, um, but anyway, that's not really a very interesting uh, issue. What's important are the so-called strong and semi-strong forms of the hypothesis, and what they say is that the market price uh, is the best possible estimate of the value of an asset. No matter how much you know about the um, about the economy or whatever, you can never uh, you can never do better than uh, the markets in working out what asset prices should be. So if we see um, if we see Irish house prices uh, going up by a factor of five, well, uh, you, the market must have, the market is the best possible estimate of that. So uh, this really, I think, is the central uh, central element of the doctrine of market liberalism. Uh, very much uh, 
uh, particularly because it was associated with, with rising asset prices. I mean, it would be a more dismal doctrine uh, right now than it was in the 1990s. Uh, a whole stream of triumphalist literature coming out of the US, uh, the most, I guess, vulgar but popular version being you know, Tom Friedman's uh, Lexus and the Olive Tree, but uh, there, that, that was representative of many, um, and all giving a central role to uh, our financial markets in various ways. First, as a source of fiscal discipline on governments that uh, ratings agencies, all-powerful and all-seeing, would correctly judge uh, uh, the value of government debt, the risk of default and so forth, um, uh, the best guide to the allocation of capital and therefore uh, an essential reason uh, in favour of comprehensive privatisation, that only with privatisation uh, can we get capital markets making crucial investment decisions rather than governments, and, um, and uh, the optimal institution for risk management. Uh, thereby undermining, uh, in principle, the need for most of the institutions of the welfare state, which can be seen as various kinds of collective devices for, for risk management. Uh, far better in the eyes of advocates of the efficient markets hypothesis to let everybody make their own choices from a wide array of financial instruments tailored to their personal needs and circumstances. So in my view, you know, <clears throat> this idea really, although obviously falsified by the global financial crisis, uh, really had a much sharper and more direct test back in the late 1990s with the dot-com bubble and bust. First, because uh, we, we didn't have sort of disturbing outside macro, um, macro shocks to deal with. We just had a case of one of the most spectacular bubbles in, in asset market history in a context where all of the usual excuses were absent. So people, there were various revisionists who went back to the Dutch tulip mania and said, well, actually, these weren't real markets. They were just guys making bets in bars, and the, uh, you can go back over the railway mania of the 19th century and make excuses in every case that uh, really these weren't actual financial market bubbles, but something else. Uh, this was the most sophisticated, transparent, uh, well-developed set of financial markets in the world, uh, making a bet that uh, you could make billions of dollars by delivering dog food over the internet. And I mean, those of you who've looked at your computer recently might suggest that it probably is not uh, an optimal method of delivering dog food and that, um, and that uh, simply by the fact that you can place your order over the internet doesn't make home delivered dog food likely to be a, a plausible commodity. But, um, uh, and indeed some very smart and wealthy and deep pocketed people made large bets on precisely that basis in the late 1990s and did their dough. Uh, people bet at when the uh, NASDAQ was at 2,500 that it would surely fall to 1,500, uh, which it did, but not after, or not before rising first to 5,000. Uh, and so, um, uh, quote, I don't think Keynes ever said this, but he did say things that were more or less, um, more or less the same, that markets can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. So that, that's you know, lesson one, but you know, just in case we thought that that, you know, and indeed, uh, we had, after that, a brief flurry of reform, some talk about a new global financial architecture in the US, the Oxley-Sarbanes Act. It only took three or four years for the financial markets and their advocates in the press to be deriding Sarbanes-Oxley as a gross overreaction that uh, simply was a, a constraint on the kind of financial innovation that we needed, things like um, uh, CDOs, collateralised deposit obligations, CDOs squared and cubed, uh, uh, assets of derivatives built on those uh, on those multiple uh, things. All of these things were being um, were being held up by the uh, unnecessary intervention that followed the dot com crisis. Uh, 
So indeed, we, we therefore have our, have our second go to tell us that financial markets can indeed get things drastically wrong twice in the course of a decade if you, if you let them. And I think what's particularly striking uh, in, in retrospect is that uh, for the people who are making the decisions, this all, all in both cases, is, pretty, is in most cases individually rational. That is, if you could look ahead, uh, not given precise timing, but just said, you know, look ahead from 1995 and say, uh, will I go into uh, stock market speculation and, uh, and real estate speculation, uh, or will I you know, stay on one side and not do it? Uh, the answer, if you're one of, the, um, one of the participants as opposed to one of the customers, is absolutely do it. Uh, you know, possibly you lose a little bit of money at the end, but you'll walk away with most of it. Uh, and. Um, and you can you know, come back and get another go, and perhaps, as we, we're seeing now, a third go uh, at the same pot. Uh, it certainly doesn't appear that uh, if you ask the typical participant uh, on the sell side of the dot-coms or, or in the financial institutions at, up to 2008, uh, are you worse off as a result, that the answer in many cases would be yes. I'm having trouble with this. So that's just a picture, I guess, of uh, the, the NASDAQ. Um, about here was when, uh, I think just here, uh, some of us who thought that uh, maybe things had gone too far thought, yes, the market has finally come to its senses for this little diff here. Um, <laughs> anybody who bet that that was, that was the way things were going to go um, lost their shirt well and truly, unless they managed to take bets that would carry them right through to about here. So uh, certainly, though, um, been reanimated, you would have thought that nothing would salvage the uh, reputations of the ratings agencies after giving AAA ratings to pieces of junk based on loans to people who had no money and no job to pay, pay the, uh, no, no job, uh, no collateral assets that could be seized uh, in uh, housing markets which had, had risen drastically. But uh, uh, they're back, uh, being treated with all the same respect seemingly as they were. Uh, before they um, stuff things up so spectacularly in, in that crisis. Uh, and that's true more generally of, of the bond markets, that the fact that uh, they've, they've got things spectacularly wrong in the past doesn't seem to uh, create a, a suggestion that uh, actually their opinions might not really be worth listening to, whether or not they're a factor that needs to be taken into account. And so we have, um, we have the return of these ideas in the form of austerity. I suppose what can be said is that uh, whereas we previously had a positive narrative that uh, these ideas were going to make us all better off, now we have you know, a there is no alternative type of narrative that uh, we have to uh, have to cut because there is no alternative but to cut. This is backed up by a sort of story about um, government profligacy that really doesn't stand up to even momentary scrutiny. Uh, it, uh, it looks plausible for Greece, which was the first cab off the rank indeed, uh, with the assistance of Goldman Sachs and other companies, uh, uh, the Greek government did an excellent job in, in breaking the, uh, the various um, uh, convergence rules for the euro. Uh, so you could broadly speaking say that this story was, was true of Greece, but the next countries that have fallen over, uh, nearly all of them, the, the crisis has arisen from two factors. One is the need to spend a vast amount of money bailing out banks and other financial institutions. And the second is uh, a belief uh, prompted by the efficient markets hypothesis that the tax revenue these, uh, these institutions were generating reflected real economic output that therefore would be a sustainable source of revenue into the future. So when those two things went away, uh, governments that have been running 
apparent surpluses or, or close to balance going into the crisis suddenly found themselves both with uh, large operating deficits and with huge amounts of debt taken on um, by the need to bail out financial institutions. Uh, so that's uh, nearly all of the cases that, um, with the, yeah, as I say, with the exception of Greece, that, that's all of the cases that we've seen. Uh, but nonetheless, this is not being used uh, to suggest that, uh, well, maybe we should do something about these financial institutions. Rather, uh, you know, it's the nurses and garbage workers who cause the crisis and therefore are being made to pay for it. Now, something I, I might skip relatively lightly over dynamic stochastic general equilibrium. Um, a set of economic models driven by theory rather than fact. And, and I don't mean to be as pejorative, perhaps, as that sounds, because theory plays an important, you know, important role. Theoretical ideas uh, can, be, uh, can be important, even if they're not directly connected to short-term prediction. But I think uh, clearly uh, looking at the performance of macroeconomics in the, decade, in the period leading up to the crisis, uh, we clearly have let uh, considerations of uh, certain sorts of theoretical desiderata uh, overwhelm the need for a, uh, a set, of set of ideas which would actually uh, both help to predict the future of the macroeconomy uh, and, uh, and give us some guidance in what to do. Uh, what we've seen is that uh, the successful predictions, to the extent there were any, were made by people who paid very little attention to these kinds of ideas, and that the policy discussion subsequently has been undertaken at a level that owes very little to um, the more sophisticated macro models. So these came out, as I explained in the book, out of a feeling that economics, the economics of the post-war period had two definitely separate branches, a macroeconomics, basically Keynesian, uh, in, which, um, in which there were a lot of ad hoc sorts of relationships, and a neoclassical microeconomics that was increasingly, uh, increasingly abstract and rigorous based on general equilibrium theory. Uh, the feeling from the 1970s, the lesson was, uh, even though Keynesianism might seem to work, uh, it will break down in the crisis, and that's because it doesn't have these micro foundations. Uh, the kind of economics that will work will be consistent from top to bottom. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's very difficult to do, so we start with some simplifications. One of them is that we have a macroeconomy that really only has one person in it. Well, actually one type of person, the so-called representative agent. And, and so we try and model the uh, economy without uh, having uh, certainly without any nasty things like class in it, but, uh, but also without, um, without even any real heterogeneity in, in people's, uh, uh, people's attitudes and behaviour, even though it seems quite likely that that kind of heterogeneity is going to matter a bit. So the, these agents are optimising, that's what microeconomic agents do, they're optimising over time, that's where the dynamic word comes from, they're optimising over risk and uncertainty, which is where stochastic comes from. They're optimising in a number of markets simultaneously, uh, general, and all of their decisions, all their optimal decisions, add up to an equilibrium outcome. Uh, so not surprisingly, when you've got people this uh, sophisticated doing things, uh, the par conclusion is going to be that things run along very smoothly indeed. Uh, the skill of the game, I, I, in the book I quote a lovely comparison of a haiku, is to twist these assumptions in just such a way that you get a little bit of a business cycle. Uh, the kind of business cycle can be dealt with by Taylor rules, uh, by, by monetary policy and so forth. And so uh, certainly in the new Keynesian version of, of DSG, uh, that was the art, was to show that uh, by, by tweaking these things just a tiny bit, you could get a medium-sized uh, business cycle. Uh, you know, and I really actually started the book uh, 
reading Akerlof and Schiller, you said, well, yeah, that's great, and both these guys have done a bunch of this kind of thing, but what if the truth is a long way away? You know, that seems to be the case, and maybe we'd be better off uh, starting with how things actually are and trying to see what we can find out rather than starting with the models we can solve and seeing how far we can push them. So I think, um, as I say, no use in predicting or resolving the Great Recession. Um, my uh, friend and um, David Gruen, this is from the Australian Treasury, said, um, it's as if as the Titanic was sailing into the iceberg-infested waters, those with the requisite skills were locked downstairs in their cabins, working out perfect models of navigation uh, for a world without icebergs. And, uh, and so um, uh, that certainly was the, uh, certainly there was a huge amount of effort going into, into work, which um, uh, didn't really assist us at all, uh, and we saw indeed, you know, of course, it's partly the business of central banks to assure us that everything's going smoothly, but, but looking at the rate at which their policies changed over the course of 2008, uh, you have to conclude that the central banks were hit by, hit, taken as much by surprise by the crisis uh, as was um, the average person who only turned to the financial pages uh, you know, once every few weeks. Uh, so, uh, as a reanimation, well, it just goes on. Um, uh, it's still very much an academic growth industry. Uh, it really has sailed smoothly on, uh, according to Google Scholar, that uh, inevitable, yeah, invaluable source. There's over a thousand papers just with the words DSG in them published in 2010 alone. A handful of those are along the lines of well, what's wrong with DSG and how can we do better, but most of them are a two-sector DSG model with myopic expectations and, uh, and um, representing the term structure of interest rates or some similar piece of, of application of these models. So, uh, so the DSG approach remains absolutely dominant, uh, calls yeah, which I and others have made for a more relevant sort of macro uh, haven't really uh, had any significant impact on the kind of thing that is being, um, uh, being produced in the academy and published in the leading journals. Trigger uh, and economics, well, I'll skite over this one reasonably fast because it's, it's uh, a straightforward idea. Uh, we're certainly seeing it well and truly uh, at work in Britain right at the moment, so, so you, you uh, all probably know what you think about it. Uh, and it is an idea, I guess I call it a zombie, but really it's an idea that's always been with us uh, and uh, as long as there are rich people and people willing to sing the praises of rich people, uh, I suppose it's unlikely ever to be killed uh, once and for all. Uh, I really liked when I was a kid and used to go to church, really liked uh, the hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful, which is really nice, but come to the second verse and uh, uh, the rich man is castle, the poor man at the gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. And so, uh, so that's the message you get from um, uh, Sunday school, it's the message that's in Aesop's fables, uh, we're unlikely ever to see this message killed off. Nonetheless, the evidence of the period of market liberalism tells pretty strongly against it. Um, here's what's happened uh, to equality in the uh, income equality in the US. This is the share of income uh, accruing, I think, to the um, uh, top 10%. What's really striking, actually, as I've written this book, is the increasing evidence of how much of this is going to the top 1% of the income distribution. Within that, how much the top 0.1%. So my uh, prejudice going into this was that one of the reasons this story had been so, sta so stable is that everybody in the top quintile or so of the income distribution, people like me for example, uh, was doing pretty well out of this, uh, out of this um, story and therefore uh, it was unsurprising that, uh, that it had such strong, popular, uh, such strong uh, support uh, 
in academia, in the papers and so forth. But in fact, when you look at the numbers, and particularly for the US, uh, even outside that top 1%, even people right at the top of the income distribution are barely holding their share. And everybody below about uh, the 90th percentile uh, is losing ground. Uh, in relative terms, people below about the 50th percentile and over the last decade losing ground in absolute terms. So that, um, uh, so there's been a huge increase in the wealth of the, uh, of the top 1% or so of the, the income distribution, largely associated with uh, the financial sector, but spreading over into CEO incomes uh, of all kinds. So, as I say, um, yeah, this is discredited as far as an idea can be. I think we can reasonably draw a line at 2008 and say let's look at the last 30 years and see what's happened. And the answer is that the great moderation in the US produced few of any gains for the poor, yet uh, the first to lose whatever they have gained have been, have been those same poor. So we've seen a brief period when it looked like, um, it looked like the well-off would suffer substantially, but, but that period is already over, uh, whereas the... Uh, deprivation of the unemployed and so forth is uh, obviously has um, uh, many years still to run before we can return to anywhere near the, uh, uh, the pre-crisis levels of, of employment um, uh, and um, by then almost certainly with a substantially diminished wage share. Uh, so reanimated, well bankers are certainly back on top in a way that you know, I don't think even they would have believed possible uh, two years ago. Uh, tax cuts for the rich uh, appear certain to uh, proceed in the US and I think uh, uh, also in the UK as far as I can tell. Uh, and we see um, uh, an, uh, increasing resources being, being devoted to the industry of explaining away poverty statistics to show that uh, really uh, things at the bottom of the heap are actually uh, pretty good. So privatisation, um, previously called denationalisation, so I'll, I'll um, the widespread use, the term actually, um, interesting article in the Journal of Economic Literature showing that its original usage was in Nazi Germany, but that's kind of a little unfair. Uh, it is important though for people who sort of stress the, the socialist element in the name of the Nazis that uh, they're also very big on privatisation and um, uh, you know, so I don't think that yeah, I don't suggest that that's an important reason for being worried about privatisation, but uh, etymology is always interesting. Uh, widespread use began with Thatcher and was the reverse of a long trend towards greater public ownership, assumed by many, I think, at the time that uh, this process uh, would end inevitably in more or less complete socialisation of, of the economy, but also by many others uh, uh, with the view that, no, you know, what, we ha what we had and would continue to have was a mixed economy in which both the public and uh, private sectors played a substantial role, and it's that view that I'm, I'm seeking to defend. So in criticising privatisation, I'm not suggesting that uh, no public asset should ever be con converted to the private sector, merely that uh, there's no good reason to think that the balance uh, we had uh, 20 years or so ago was, was radically wrong, and certainly uh, no reason to think that uh, comprehensive privatisation of public enterprise uh, and public service provision is likely to yield desirable outcomes. Uh, so it sort of, um, uh, I guess, had its real heyday in the 1990s. Um, uh, first, you know, uh, the uh, British economy by then was doing fairly well, so the um, uh, uh, Thatcher was seen as, as having uh, achieved great successes for Britain. Uh, uh, yeah, it was certainly her policies uh, uh, living in Australia, even though we had Labor governments for most of this period, they were very keen, uh, as I guess was the, the new Labor government of Tony Blair, to. Uh, uh, continue those kinds of trends and to take advantage of um, uh, to um, 
uh, pursue very similar policies. Uh, the collapse of communism certainly, uh, certainly helped, both in terms of discrediting uh, the socialist alternative, but also, of course, in directly giving uh, rise to a wave of privatisations, uh, some of which were handled OK, but you know, most of which ended up as, as exercises uh, in looting, certainly in, in the Soviet Union. And uh, yeah, I'll give Tom Friedman and Guernsey uh, yet again as, as, the, as the US triumphalist version of this kind of thing. So um, I think um, we have, uh, we were though by, by then, these are policies that you know, don't take that long to work themselves out and pretty rapidly produce their share of failures and disappointments. And so New Zealand, which had gone very hard down this path in the 1980s, uh, uh, was an extreme case, a country which uh, until then uh, had um, a similar income per person to Australia's and, and very similar sorts of activities and prognoses. Uh, you know, during this period when Australia was doing some of this stuff, but not nearly as enthusiastically, uh, there were delegations flying into Wellington um, more or less daily in the late 1980s, uh, finding out about their marvellous um, economic reforms. Uh, when the results came in and New Zealand per capita income fell 30% below the Australian level, where it's since remained, um, you know, the, I guess the visiting delegations found some other place to visit. They were in Iceland, I think, um, uh, up until relatively recently. Um, so I think uh, the big event, you know, the, the big event of the, uh, as I say, the, the case for comprehensive privatisation rests pretty critically on the efficient capital markets hypothesis, because uh, a standard story, which I would certainly put for the mixed economy, is granted that. Uh, inevitably, public sector enterprises aren't going to be as tightly run or as profit-focused as as, uh, as um, private ones. Nonetheless, uh, capital market failures are widespread, and therefore, for long-lived uh, certain capital-intensive kinds of investments, there's often a strong case for public ownership. If you believe the efficient market, you know, capital markets hypothesis, uh, that can't be true. Uh, but as I've said, I think the evidence against that hypothesis is 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 very strong and therefore the positive case for comprehensive privatisation uh, falls with the efficient market hypothesis. That doesn't tell us, give us an answer in any particular case, but it does give us, uh, does undermine the qualitative claim that we should be better off with privatisation across the board. And we've seen a bunch of, of renationalisations or of new nationalisations, um, uh, a bit of a British focus list there, but of course uh, General Motors uh, not so long ago, plenty of instances of of uh, temporary or permanent nationalisation taking place, you know, very much undermining the view that uh, once something's in the public, in the private sphere, it should never, uh, never return. The opposite of the kind of, uh, of inevitable march of history view that, that uh, some socialists had up until the 1970s. Uh, but still, yeah, I'll, I'll speak of Australian evidence. And now, yeah, right now, we're, we're engaging in a, a massive brawl in my home state of Queensland about various privatisations which have been put forward um, and, in my view, handled thoroughly incompetently by our local, uh, local Labor government. Um, uh, uh, it, it's uh, an interesting observation in terms of, I guess, the political economy of it that um, uh, the governments that are doing this are almost certainly doomed, but on the other hand, the, um, uh, the leading politicians who are implementing it are almost certainly assured of cushy jobs in the financial sector post-politics, uh, so that um, you know, in terms of you know, those economists who like individual rationality, there's certainly plenty of it, plenty of it here, even you know, the only question, I guess, is why the, the back bench is, has lined up so meekly to, um, uh, to give their seats away. But um, certainly we're seeing these... Uh, uh, privatisation is still continuing. Uh, we need, I think, um, 
in the light of, uh, in light both of, of course, the post-war disillusionment with, with aspects of public ownership and then by the failure of the efficient capital markets hypothesis, we need to rethink of all of these issues uh, of uh, where the balance between the uh, public and private sector should be drawn and what are the, um, what are the, uh, uh, what are the balancing factors starting from the premise that there is indeed a boundary to be drawn, that it isn't simply a case of uh, moving all the way along a spectrum either towards uh, uh, socialism or towards complete, uh, complete privatisation. So that's my quick tour. I'm, I'm sort of running, I think, just about on time. So I'll, um, I'll just mention, well, you know, uh, to me these ideas seem uh, obviously to have been refuted and indeed in the form I presented them, uh, you know, haven't encountered much in the way of public defence. Rather, the kind of defence you see is that uh, you know, I'm attacking a straw man and so forth, and, and I think the claim that you're attacking a straw man is almost invariably um, a sign that you haven't got a real man there to, uh, there to defend. Uh, so yeah, you can dance back and forth between the various versions of the efficient markets hypothesis and say that no one really ever supported uh, the extreme versions, uh, but you know, it's very hard, I think, to find somebody who's going to take even the semi-strong version as a, as a plausible hypothesis uh, now. Um, except uh, I've got uh, a... Um, oh, my slides have gone slightly astray, so let's ignore the first two dot points which belong on a different slide. So I think first, uh, the third point, but an important one is, you know, these are ideas that benefit powerful interests as long as, not, as long as that's true. Any idea, no matter how... Um, uh, how silly it is, is certainly going to uh, have at least some advocates. Uh, for yeah, a more vulgar Marxist among my acquaintance, if there are any of those left, that's a sufficient explanation, I guess, but um, uh, I don't think that's the case. I think a second point is that intellectual commitments are very tenacious, especially, um, uh, especially for people who've built an academic career pursuing sort of certain sorts of ideas. Uh, Reasonably enough, in some ways, you don't want to abandon those ideas just because uh, this year's evidence looks, against, looks to be against them. You, you know, often it may turn out that um, ideas that seemed, um, uh, seemed defeated come back. Nonetheless, I think uh, the tenacity of, of these things within the academy is, is uh, greater than it should be and leads to people pursuing research agendas that no longer make a lot of sense. Uh, and finally, uh, economics is hard. I mean, I, I, I think it, although I think these ideas have been fairly comprehensively refuted, uh, to say, for example, that um, Keynesian macroeconomics and the benefits of stimulus have been um, proved to be true, I think is a much harder, harder claim to defend. I believe that's correct. I think that a reasonable look at the evidence over the crisis suggests that those countries that managed a large-scale fiscal stimulus early did better than those that uh, either failed to do so or were constrained by, by crisis from doing so, uh, but it's very hard to prove that, uh, prove that case once and for all. It's also very hard to come up with uh, a ready-made replacement for the kinds of ideas we've had, and that, that I think, distinguishes the current crisis from, uh, at least in the long haul, the Great Depression, where we saw Keynesian ideas emerging uh, as an attractive alternative, and the failure of Keynesianism when monetarism uh, was at hand as a seeming saviour. So, um, yeah, we are, I think, uh, in important respects in terms of the zombie metaphor, the zombies are certainly swarming now in terms of policy. We really see, uh, and, and indeed, you know, perhaps the zombie metaphor is more appropriate than when I first thought of it simply as undead, because 
I think undead but also brainless in the sense that we're seeing ideas like austerity pushed either with a gesture towards ideas like crowding out that I think you know, can't be seriously sustained at all or simply on the instinctive basis that this is what one does in this kind of situation. Uh, the, you know, the market liberalism in the 1970s was supported from the 1970s onwards was supported by a fairly richly developed set of ideas which uh, seemed appealing but which have now failed. Uh, we now have the same kinds of policies being advocated uh, but without anybody being willing to defend most of the key theoretical ideas that uh, uh, certainly defend against any sort of vigorous attack are uh, the key theoretical ideas that would, would suggest that these, these policies were good ones to pursue. Uh, what do we need? Well, this is the hard part, of course. Uh, always easy to write the critical part of one of these, these books, but I have tried pretty hard in the book to at least suggest the kinds of directions I think economics needs, needs to go. So starting with, as I mentioned, we're talking about, I mentioned micro-foundations, and the first problem is, well, the micro-foundations aren't very good. They're well-designed, I think, or reasonably well-designed for the purpose for which they were created, which is to, is to predict uh, how actors in commodity markets will behave. And broadly speaking, in your role as a purchaser of, of most commodities, the fact that you aren't perfectly unboundedly rational doesn't matter very much, even the fact that you're not, you know, the kind of self-interested, nasty person that uh, economics assumes doesn't matter very much because nice or nasty, you still want to buy your tomatoes at the, at the cheaper, you know, at the, the going market price. You don't want to buy more or less tomatoes uh, uh, because you feel sorry for the tomato seller because presumably the same feelings of charity, if you have them, would extend to the person uh, selling zucchinis in the next stall and, and so forth. So, so the kind of micro-foundations of, of microeconomics work well for that purpose, that's no reason to suppose they're going to work well in the context of macro. And there is indeed a large, uh, large research agenda trying to make theories of behaviour under uncertainty uh, uh, in particular more realistic, and as Andre mentioned, you know, I've been toiling in that field for 30 odd years, it's certainly, um, well, I think we're making progress, but it, it certainly still is not a ready-made set of ideas that, that can be uh, applied to policy. And so we've seen that on the whole, although uh, it's a little academic industry, uh, yeah, which is certainly keeps plenty of, uh, plenty of us in work. It hasn't really uh, been incorporated into the mainstream of economics in the way in which I think it, think it should be. I think yeah, the second point is, um, is the, um, the standard Keynesian idea, and an idea that's familiar from all kinds of system theories and so forth, uh, that, um, uh, that at any level of explanation, there are likely to be aggregate phenomena that can't easily be reduced to uh, reduced to their component parts. And I don't mean to invoke any sort of uh, mysticism about things here. Just the fact that uh, uh, you, you explain things at a certain level, and uh, and it's, it's not always easy to reduce those things to uh, to the individual parts we know are we know are operational. So things like trust, social networks and so forth I think are clearly important, uh, particularly in explaining why, for example, it's so hard to recover from a recession. Uh, we, we see, I think, uh, recessions as, as breaking down various kinds of trust and, and belief in uh, the credibility of public policy, in breaking down the kind of social networks that people rely on to, uh, uh, to find employment. All sorts of phenomena like this, I think, uh, need to be examined um, a lot more, and we need to go back again to questions of disequilibrium or, uh, in Keynes's term, the more general version, you know, Keynes's general theory was precisely more general than the so-called general equilibrium of uh, Arrow and de Brewer, uh, even though, uh, which came later. So I think those are the kinds of directions in which 
economics needs to move. I've, I have a bit more in detail on all those things in the book. Uh, where to from here? Well, I think first, historical, historical awareness is just critical. We don't get many episodes like this. We need to really uh, look hard at... Uh, in the current recession, there has been a fair bit largely tendentious, tendentious rethinking of the... Um, of the uh, Great Depression experience, but I think it's also equally important to rethink uh, the breakdown of the 1960s and 1970s. Why did Keynesianism work well for two decades or three decades and then fail fairly spectacularly? Uh, as long as we had the Great Moderation and everything else was going well, uh, that was a question of primarily academic interest, but now I think uh, the question of you know, can we get, can we derive an adequate Keynesian alternative to the policies that have failed us so badly is one of pressing interest. Uh, more generally, some sort of methodological points. I think you know, we have to focus, you know, economists love rigour and there's something to be said for it, but it induces an admirable degree of consistency, but there's no great merit in being consistently wrong. Uh, we want to, um, we're better off having a, a, a model which, even if not entirely satisfactory, uh, is more realistic uh, at the expense of one that uh, is, is entirely rigorous but gives us uh, uh, wrong or, or even more strikingly just useless and irrelevant answers. I think we're really uh, looking at the experience, looking at the situation we're in after 30 years of market liberalism, we need a renewed emphasis on equity. That's certainly something which was a major part of the concerns of the economists who taught me you know, coming out, that largely people who'd entered the profession uh, with memories of the Great Depression and, you know, and whose motives were to, uh, you know, were to prevent the recurrence of such a thing and, and uh, to avoid the kind of poverty and deprivation it caused. All of that's largely been lost in the, in the period of the uh, uh, period of market liberalism, not entirely, but I think we need to uh, look harder at it. And finally, I guess, uh, as, a, as a social science, I think we need a, a lot more humility. I mean, the fact is that uh, uh, we have, on key issues, changed our minds radically uh, three or four times in the past hundred years, uh, very hard with that kind of track record to, to suggest that, uh, uh, that we have the answers and that um, uh, the sociologists and political scientists should just sit down and, uh, and listen to, to us because we know what's what. So thanks very much uh, for listening. I've got, um, I think, uh, half an hour to 40 minutes for questions and then um, uh, you can uh, get beautiful signed copies of the book with... Uh, I think definitely the best cover design of an economics book for some time. So. so let me um, open this for discussion by starting to take some questions. Um, one of the uh, big problems in a practical day-to-day -day living sense is the cost of housing. Uh, when I was at university, it was uh, back in the 60s, I was told that a fair price for a house was about four times your income. Uh, now, in many places, it's much more than 10, 12 more times. Now, I noticed that in Britain, in the uh, change of uh, building societies into banks, uh, that 
process created a lot of money and the banks contributed enormously to the uh, inflation of house prices. The government ignored that by having two indices, one ignoring house prices, so we saw a soaring uh, value in house prices as compared to incomes. And I'm just wondering now if uh, there is any uh, good to be achieved by economists saying to the governments, look, uh, you banks created all this money, now you can jolly well write it off. Uh, so just what do you think about that? Um, let me take a couple more questions yeah, sure. and then you can. So there's a question up there and one. There's a question up there. Uh, thank you for a nice um, uh, seminar. Um, my, my question is less about the economics and about more your thoughts on the policy making process um, and why certain ideas endure because your five zombies are kind of dated from the 1970s and so, my, so I wonder about the zombies from a previous era. Why, why have they been comprehensively killed off whereas the 1970s ones seem to survive? What is it about the policy-making process? Um, and your reflections on that, please. I thought you had a question. Perhaps a question we should be asking ourselves is why these theories, ideologies, have persisted so strongly. And of course, perhaps we should be asked, you mentioned the top 1%. And of course, the, the top 1%, it's vastly in their interest to see these policies continuing. If you're a top banker or you're Rupert Murdoch, you're going to be pushing these policies, you know, till the cows come home. So you get um, uh, think tanks, you know, Institute of Economic Affairs, all sorts of other people, and pushing out all this propaganda and noise all the time. And one thing that's, um, that a man from David, David Runciman at Cambridge uh, discovered was that if, if you push propaganda out all the time, all day, every day, people will come to believe it. So in, a, in the United States, people are on the Pea Party people are afraid of the death tax. We talk about inheritance tax in this country, but nobody ever wants to reduce taxes on poor people. And everyone, in this country, now we're getting people, oh, we're in this together. You know, I blame the Labour government, they're responsible. They don't blame the banks or in the United States. And, um, you know, blame the, the media will always blame politicians rather than institutions so I'm afraid we're stuck with this and I feel very pessimistic that you know we've got elections in in, in America in 2012 that people might you know you get poor people voting against their own interests what are we going to do so yeah, on, on the first question, I mean, I don't have a complete answer, but I think it's, it's, I don't think it's coincidental that the size of the financial sector more or less quadrupled over this same period. And so I think it, uh, policies that 
uh, reduce the size of the financial sector, the volume of financial transactions would probably tend to bring down asset prices relative to um, uh, relative to flows of uh, the flows of services they generate. So, so I guess I, I tend to think that uh, you know, with a, uh, a substantially cut down financial sector, we'd certainly see less of the bubble type episodes um, uh, and probably uh, lower. Uh, lower asset prices, lower housing prices in general. The other two questions were much the same, uh, or a uh, uh, question and maybe a statement. I, I have in you know, the famous quote by Keynes, uh, you know, the effect of the power of ideas, that um, uh, the madman in authority hearing voices in the air is distilling his frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. And certainly those of us who are academic scribblers, or these days academic typists, um, uh, like to like to think that that's right, and I guess I think I think uh, I I am less convinced of the power of propaganda when it's at variance with people's lived experience sufficiently strongly. So, you know, the Soviet Union had an immensely well-developed propaganda machine, which which stayed in operation and which yeah, really didn't receive much in the way of overt challenge uh, right until right until the end. Uh, but at a certain point in time. People started to realise that this wasn't true, that there were a bunch of things you said in certain contexts, but that the reality was other. And I think you can see that already in some of the things the Tea Party does, you know, that on the one hand, of course, uh, although they're acting very much in the interest of Wall Street, they now have to, they now have to rail against the bankers in much the same way and say it's all the fault of the Democrats for being in bed with the bankers. Uh, so, yeah, but unlike the previous situation where most people could be convinced that the system was delivering for them or would deliver for them fairly shortly. I think that isn't the case now, and therefore I think um, I think these ideas will have much less um, much less success in uh, retaining the hold they've had. Especially because I think that you know, there are sort of powerful forces, you know, the long inheritance of Calvinism and so forth, uh, that make policies like cuts and things appear attractive in the short run. That you know, the feeling that uh, we have to have, take our medicine is one that's beaten into us in various ways in, in childhood. Uh, that tends, I think, not to last when it becomes apparent that some people are taking a lot more of the, the medicine than others. So, um, so I think uh, yeah, my view is that uh, although it's important not to dismiss the power of ideas, uh, sorry, not to dismiss the power of, of uh, interest to, draw, to drive the kinds of ideas they want, uh, it works much better when the narrative they're telling is basically a mildly tailored version of, of the truth as people feel it to one when the message they're sending out is one that's very much opposite to, uh, to people's actual experience. And so my view is uh, obviously this uh, process will take, uh, will take a long while but, but I'm still optimistic enough I guess to write this book and to keep on trying, uh, uh, trying to operate in the sphere of ideas to suggest uh, some alternatives. I think it's connected to your previous question and with, I thought was your subject uh, of, of much research, utility and social choice. Mm. Uh, isn't it an unintended consequence of Arrow's work mm. that we've got four quintiles of our society thinking themselves extremely individualistic uh, while look it from a side absolutely homogenic. Is it, is it, it, isn't it a produced situation, a, a fabricated situation? 
Um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite sure I followed the point. Um, if I understood yeah. the Arrow theorem yeah. properly, are we thinking of the general equilibrium you, you, or the you, impossibility You don't have theorem. much of social choice. Yeah. Because uh, it yeah. always will come out wrong. So you, if, yeah. if you ask uh, the same sure. question in the uh, in the other way oh, yeah, or sure. in the other order, you mm. always sure. got another outcome. All right. Now I see. So, wait, yeah. so to go around it, probably that's my say hypothesis. Uh, what we were trying to do for the last thirty years is to uh, instill belief mm. that we are extremely individualistic. Mm. while at the same time work on such kind of reactions so that they were predictable and they allowed us to work around the RO. Mm. Oh, sorry, you know, I thought you were thinking about general, uh, when I think of RO, I was thinking of general equilibrium rather than the social possibility theorem, so I hadn't followed your point. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, in a sense, ideology always, I mean, because it's an, it, is, you know, it is a valid theorem, uh, the, the theorem shows, in essence, that most of the time, uh, if we tried to um, try to come up with some sort of procedure for making decisions between a bunch of choices, uh, we'd just go around and we'd just go around in circles depending on how we asked the question. And, and since decisions have to be made, uh, systems that function uh, produce uh, produce uh, have to have to be one way or another pushed into ways that uh, that don't have that property. One way is to give all the power to one person or to a small group of people who think similarly. Uh, other ways are to organise things on a convenient left-right spectrum where uh, idea, which obviously, given that the actual characteristics of ideas have many dimensions, produces some odd sort of pairings where your views on economic policy are tied up with your views on, say, capital punishment or, or uh, the environment and so forth. And so that sort of, in, that sort of in some various ways, political systems work to produce uh, that sort of construction and, and that produces if you can control the way in which items are put on the agenda, uh, that certainly helps you to get the kind of outcomes you want. And certainly that sort of agenda setting has been, I think, a major part of the uh, ideological uh, work, you know, certainly uh, in very sophisticated ways over the last 30 years or so. Um, th thank you very much for that um, talk. It was really interesting. I really um, enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Um, of the five ideas, the one that seemed to me to be least uh, compelling in terms of its relative importance was the dynamic yeah. stochastic general equilibrium idea. Yeah. Uh, whereas my understanding, I'm not a central banker, but my understanding is that that hasn't been particularly influential in the way that central banks mm. have certainly have done their forecasting, yeah. presumably therefore their, their, their policy, the way they've formulated mm. their policies. So I wondered why you, you know, why you put, why you chose that as one yeah. of your five. I did well. Partly, I mean, partly it was something which was something which really you know, was sent came to me in, in writing the in writing the book. So I mean, if you said you know, John Green's going to write a book criticising some ideas, you know, said that back in two thousand and five, you'd be unsurprised to say I was going to criticise privatisation and trickle-down economics because I've been criticising those things for a long time. So, so I guess this was something where I felt not you know, it's. Yeah, it's a mistake, I guess, to say this is an idea that drove the crisis. It more just took the economics profession down, yeah, in my view, a blind alley, which meant that we really, when, when the crisis came, not only did we not have much to say, but, but um, yeah, we, 
what you saw was, well, what you saw in particular is that the macro debate, the macro policy debate, has largely been conducted by people who in, macro, in economic terms are non-specialists. You have people like Krugman on one side, um, uh, Cochrane and Farmer on the other side. You know, these are people who, you know, who, whose uh, expertise, great as it is, isn't in macro um, at all. And, and so um, yeah, Krugman's a, you know, a trade theorist and uh, Cochrane and Farmer are finance guys. So, um, so that was part of it, and I suppose you know, it, it was something where you know, I've been looking at Minsky a few years back and said, well, what this really needs is a micro foundation. So I was, I've been much more sympathetic to that project, and really, change, you know, really, I guess, had a change of view that you know, really was a wrong direction. Uh, and so that's why I guess why I why I put it in as a you know, it's sort of in some parts you know, to say you know, this was one of the you know, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse is, is a bit of a mistake. It, it's something more where I sort of felt. Yeah, that was something I'd learned from the crisis, yeah, an idea that sort of seemed appealing before the crisis and had, had died rather than one that really, except insofar as it, it meant that the profession had very little to offer. Yeah, we, we really weren't, had stopped paying attention to the kind of questions like how big is the multiplier um, that would actually have been useful uh, and instead spent a lot of time yeah, working out oil our equations and stuff like that uh, for optimisations that were never going to take place. I'm Albert Marcet from the economics department here. So I would say one of the dead ideas that still walks among us is that there is this some sort of conspiration to extend the efficient market hypothesis and the representative agents and that models of this kind have been ruling the world uh, for the last uh, 40 years, and you sounded a little bit like that. So I'm going to press you to sure. see to what extent you really think that. Okay? Uh, if you look at the research, at the research journals uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, this is not at all true. Um, many, uh, I would say most uh, economics, economists doing research have been working on models that do not uh, have efficient, where the efficient market hypothesis doesn't work. That's the, the vast majority of the work. I suppose that the reason some of these dead ideas walk among us is that there are some Nobel prizes, prize winners that um, keep saying these things, even though they got the Nobel Prize. So they are very much the establishment, because you only get the Nobel Prize if you're kind of the establishment. They got the Nobel Prize, and, but they're still complaining that there are some people with other ideas, and that's a bit I find it sure. extremely disappointing to misrepresent what economists have been doing. Okay, economists sure. have been looking at mm. failures of the, of the efficient market hypothesis all the time. You ended the uh, models of disequilibrium. The, the Nobel Prize winners of this year have been looking at models of disequilibrium. Uh, um, okay, so, so let, well, starting with the efficient market hypothesis, I mean, I'm, I mean, I suppose what I'd say is, yeah, and I say in the, I say, yeah, I say, say this in the book, yeah, there's a whole bunch of empirical research, yeah, which really doesn't give you a lot of support for the strong forms of the efficient market hypothesis. But in terms of, in terms of the question, uh, if we ask, if we ask the question, well, how does, yeah, how do those qualifications affect public policy? I would say the answer is very little. I would say public policy is driven. Yeah, in many ways by the yeah, by the crudest possible version, yeah, the strongest and crudest possible versions of the efficient markets hypothesis. Um, 40% of the GDP 
is paid to the government. How can we say that? Forty percent of GDP in most OECD economies, I don't know the numbers hmm. exactly, between 35, sure. 40, even more than 40 percent of GDP is run by the government. How can, it's not, it cannot be true that the main thing driving policy is the efficient market hypothesis because that number would be zero if we well, believe no, that. And as, as I mentioned, I mean the efficient so, market hypothesis is about financial markets and so even the, the most... The issue, and it's, an it's a very interesting issue, is where should governments intervene? Yeah. How should they intervene? We kind of got a suggestion that maybe they should intervene in financial markets in the, in the last mm. 10 years. That's a good point, I think. But, so, but that's the point, not to try and see where they should intervene and how, instead of... Uh, sure. Okay, let me, let me come back. I mean, as I said, the efficient market hypothesis is not, I mean, is really an efficient financial market hypothesis. So it doesn't even, yeah, it, I mean, although I think it can lead you to a support, you know, to a lot, to a, it, it can provide some support for an agenda of comprehensive privatisation. That agenda certainly was around, even if not, to, yeah, even if it ran into practical difficulties fairly early on. It certainly, it certainly was the stated views of, yeah, the, the stated principle of, of lots of, of uh, lots of governments, and certainly the view that the movement should always be in the direction of more privatisation. I think has been uh, very much the dominant dominant viewpoint. As we go, but, but when I said it, it drove public policy, I really meant it drove public policy to, to, towards the financial sector. That is, the dominant view was uh, the financial sector gets things right and the best thing governments can do is get out the road. And I think Basel II, for example, is very much you know, something which said, let's not you know, tell financial institutions which assets are other to invest in, let's just let them assess their risks and make sure that looks... Uh, that looks reason. That looks reasonably adequate. And I mean, talking about Nobel prizes. I mean, you know, I think, you know, it's. I mean, he probably won't quite get it. But I think, absent Nobel, absent the financial crisis, Eugene Palmer would certainly have. Yeah, you know, he was on everybody's list of number one guy. And he he defends, for practical purposes, an unqualified version of the efficient markets hypothesis. I don't think there's any relevant qualification. Yeah. You know, so so it's not. Yeah, you know, I, I agree that. And I think I've made clear in the book, it's not, it's not that the vast majority of economists have endorsed these strong forms, but that the strong form is out there, and it's the one, in my view, that's driven, uh, uh, driven public policy where it matters. We have probably have time for one more question. You wrote this book in public. How did it make it better, or perhaps worse, given that you were posting drafts of the chapters to the blogs? Good, yeah, no, so that's, that's, this is a fun book to, to write because uh, whereas normally the author you know, labels alone in the garret, as I, I, the book started with some posts on blogs and, and so yeah, I was invited to turn the blog post into books and so I just kept on doing that, putting up each bit of the book on the blog as, as I went and I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I got a lot out of that. I mean, I think, um, you yeah, know, for example, I guess I, I was inclined, you know, I, I think I still don't place as much weight on the representative agent story as, as a lot of people do. I think there's yeah, a bunch of people for whom that really is you know, the ultimate, ultimate sin. But I, I certainly, lots of people pressed me on that issue, why haven't you talked about it? And you know, I came to the conclusion, yeah, really I do need to, I do need to talk about it. There were lots of you know, factual things, you know, mind things, the kind of stuff that you always get in reviews, no doubt. There were plenty left, but, but you know, I certainly had plenty of people picking me up on um, uh, even simple things like you know, I had a, a totally incorrect understanding of what the phrase carry trade meant. And um, yeah, 
people who, who knew their financial markets better than I do could you know, explain to me what that actually um, uh, what that actually meant. So, so I got a lot out of it, um, and I suppose you know, I, it certainly also just gives you confidence, at least with a reasonably, you know, a reasonably sympathetic audience, but open to anybody that you know, that the uh, yeah you know, I think you can tell after after writing blogs for a while if something you know, there are there are ways of getting too much debate and there are ways of getting too little and if you get the right amount and the right sort of discussion then, then it's likely that you're writing a way that's engaging and pe engaging people's thought and interest uh, without simply pressing you know, the kind of hot buttons that on a blog you can guarantee to produce 350 dueling comments um, you know, entirely self-referential after about comment 100 but um, yeah thanks for that question. Thank you. Thanks uh, to Professor Quigging for a very interesting presentation and thanks for, to all of you for coming here.